Who's ever heard a sermon on Ezekiel 38 before? Anyone? Oh, Chris, very good. Well, you'll all be able to answer that question in the affirmative after this evening. Um, it's important that we talk about passages such as these and not just skip over them. It's God's word, right, to us. And we believe that uh, he has things to say to us, good things to reveal to us, even in passages such as these. But what on earth are we going to do with Ezekiel 38? Um, there are some parts of Scripture, right? some entire books even, some chapters, uh, some verses, some words even, that people have made into rabbit holes. Uh, well, folk have made Ezekiel 38 and 39, they sort of belong together, Ezekiel 38 and 39, into a rabbit warren, okay? Uh, there are all sorts of theories as to who is who and when is when, and it's all too easy to get disoriented and lost. And let me just put it out there that I, I believe that many of these series uh, are unnecessary and unhelpful. Uh, because God's message actually is clear enough and powerful enough on its own without having to sort of make a puzzle out of it. The key to understanding Ezekiel 38 is actually the context in which it is written for us. So if you've been following, Ezekiel has been a very ordered book, right? It's very well put together. Chapters 1 through 24 are a series of prophecies telling of God's coming wrath against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Right? God himself will bring Babylon against them. Chapters 25 and 32, we didn't spend a lot of time here, but chapters 25 to 32 then give a series of prophecies against the foreign nations who take part in or delight in Israel's downfall. But the turning point of Ezekiel is chapter 33. Ezekiel 30. That is the turning point of Ezekiel. Because it's there that the exiles in Babylon receive word that Jerusalem has fallen. But from then on, it's actually been a message of hope. So from chapter 33 onwards, it's actually been a message of hope. God promises an astonishing restoration culminating in these incredible verses here in chapter 37. My servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I'll make a covenant of peace with them. It'll be an everlasting covenant. I'll establish them and increase their numbers and I'll put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. I mean, it sounds too good to be true, <laughs> particularly to the exiles. 
I mean, who is to say that once they return to the land, okay, okay, they believe that God's going to take them back to the land, but even when they get there, what's to say that the whole cycle of sin and judgment and sin and judgment and sin won't continue? So that is, um, who's to say that 587 won't happen again? 587 BC is when Jerusalem got destroyed. Who's to say that's not going to happen again? What guarantee does God have that forever means forever this time? Okay, so those are the sorts of questions that Ezekiel 38 and 39 answer for us. Think of it as a sort of literary cartoon strip, one that you might find uh, or in ages past, perhaps in the newspapers, okay? And this cartoon has four Panels. In the first panel, Ezekiel is told to prophesy against Gog of the land of Magog. And I heard, of, I heard a whisper um, as we were reading. Who's Gog? It's <laughs> a good question. We'll come to it. Anyway, he's told to prophesy against Gog of the land of Magog, who sort of leads this super army against Israel, and they come from the corners of the then known world, but as in the days of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the attack's going to come from the north. But here's a key question, and I wonder whether you picked up on it in, in our reading. Who is calling the shots? It's God, right? God is the general mobilising Gog's forces. Verse 4. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and bring you out with your whole army. God will lead Gog out like an animal on a leash against his own people. And after many days and in future years, they're going to advance on Israel like this storm cloud covering the land. It is a terrifying prospect, isn't it? Except for the fact that God, God has conscripted Gog into his service. Okay, the second panel reveals the motives of Gog. Apparently oblivious to the hand of the Lord in all of this, Gog, by his own confession, is motivated by a single passion, greed. Israel is home now, they're prospering, and Gog and his allies gather to loot it and plunder it, and they are an easy target. Verse 11, they are unsuspecting. And defenceless. They're without walls, without gates, without bars. The third panel pitches the advance of Gog. This is after many days in future years. You will come from your place in the far north, you and your nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army. You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers a land. In the days to come, Gog, I'll bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. With overwhelming numbers and force, the invasion begins. But whose people 
are they attacking? My people. Whose land are they invading? My land. Why, why would God bring Gog against his people and his land? So that the nations may know me when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. That there is an ominous clause for Gog and his allies. Because while God's defenceless and unsuspecting people might be caught by surprise, God's not going to be. He has his own agenda. The fourth and final panel of Ezekiel 38 pictures God himself intervening to defend his otherwise defenceless people. And so in other words, yes, God will both summon and miraculously defeat this super army of, of Gog, prince of Magog. Verse 18, this is what will happen in that day. When Gog attacks the land of Israel, my hot anger will be aroused, declares the sovereign Lord. And there's going to be no great earthquake and mountains will tremble and crumble. There'll be a plague, bloodshed, rain, hail, fire, brimstone. It's the flood. It's Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the ten plagues of Egypt, sort of all wrapped into one. Gog and his super army would be totally and finally defeated by God himself. And so, he says, and so I will finish. I will show my greatness and my holiness and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they'll know that I am the Lord. Now God's victory over Gog is going to reveal his supremacy and his sovereignty. So it's a little rough around the edges, but actually Ezekiel 38 tells a pretty straightforward story, doesn't it? And what is the answer to their question? Who is to say that 587 won't happen again? God. God says 587 won't happen again. God says, I say 587 won't, is not going to happen again. Imagine, if you will, the worst case scenario. Ezekiel 38 and 39. You see, when God ultimately restores his people to the perfect relationships described uh, in those few verses in chapter 37 that we read, there's never again going to be any danger that such peace and blessing could be threatened or destroyed. Israel will live in safety forever because God is in control. And for Ezekiel's audience who are in exile, God's promise of protection against an enemy even more perilous than the Babylonians would have given them great comfort and confidence as they face the future. But at this point in our series, uh, we're in part 10, by the way, just in case you're interested, of 11. Next week is the last week in Ezekiel. But at this point in our series, we need to pause and ask ourselves a question that my three-year-old asks all the time. Seth is in a phase of life, he's in the why phase of life. If your parents, in, you, you know all about this, right? Why, why? Everything begins with why. Now the why question may be annoying, 
Uh, however, it is actually a very good question. And so we're going to ask it, of Ezekiel, uh, ask it of Ezekiel. So to begin with, why does God restore such an unfaithful and undeserving people such as the Israelites? Okay, there's our first why question. Now, Ezekiel has a very unique answer to that. Isaiah has his answer. Jeremiah has his answer. But Ezekiel, he's got a very unique answer to it. And so you might want to go home and highlight this verse in your Bibles. Ezekiel 36, 22. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned, profaned among the nations where you've gone. And so the answer actually is in, the, is in our, uh, our sermon series title, For the Sake of My Holy Name. You see, God's good name is important to him. He would not be taken lightly, not by Israel and not by the nations who were watching on. And they'd been watching on for some time now. It would have been like um, watching a family with small children at a restaurant. Not much is at stake for the kids, right? They're just kids. But for the parents, you can feel like your entire reputation is at stake. Well, according to Ezekiel, the whole history of Israel, from its very beginning, all the way up until 587, had been one long tantrum. One long toddler tantrum by Israel. And while God was compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness and maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin, he could not leave the guilty unpunished. Why? Because, meanwhile... The nations are watching on. And God's reputation had been tainted. And he couldn't allow it to go on. Hence the exile and hence the destruction of Jerusalem. But the exile, the solution to one problem, created another problem. Not only had Israel continued to bring dishonour to God while they were in exile, but the very fact that they were in exile brought dishonour to God because meanwhile the nations were watching. And they were thinking, what does it say about your God that you're here? What does it say about your God that you're here? Uh, once again, Seth <laughs> is fascinated at this uh, season of his life, as well as this uh, climactic season, in storms, right? He just loves storms. Uh, and his most common question nowadays is, why did God bring the storm? Now, that is a very exasperating question, particularly around bedtime, <laughs> which is when he always asks it, because it's always when the storm comes through. I'm like, oh, Seth. But let's ask that question of Ezekiel 38. So why did God bring the storm that was Gog and his armies against Israel? Or another way of asking that is, what is the point of the Gog oracle? 
What is the point of Ezekiel 38 and 39? And it's this. It's to let the world know that it was God who took his people into exile. And it is God who will bring them back. God was in control. God is in control. And God will be in control. And once the nation has been restored according to its original dream, it's finished. And it's forever. God's people will still face opposition. But the victory belongs to the Lord because the battle belongs to the Lord. And ultimately, he'll be acknowledged and glorified for who he is. But the Gog Oracle has one last promise for us. This is right at the end of chapter 39. It says, I'll no longer hide my face from them, for I'll pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. This is a definitive event by which God would claim and seal his newly gathered people as his own. Which, guess what, means that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is good news for us. It's good news for us because we've inherited this promise. We've inherited the promises of Ezekiel. We've inherited this promise in the Holy Spirit that was first poured out in Acts 2 and is subsequently given to everyone who would believe. He has put his sanctuary among us. He's put his sanctuary in us forever. You see, Jesus alone, right? Part of the function of Ezekiel is encouraging the remnant in exile to be the faithful remnant. It is, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a prophecy of hope. But in actual fact, Jesus alone was the faithful remnant in whom this is all fulfilled And not only is Jesus the true Israel, but he is the foundation of the new Israel. That is, all those who would put their faith in him, whether Jew or Gentile. So it didn't mean nothing to the exiles back in Ezekiel's day, but it means everything to us now, to us exiles. For we have inherited and will inherit the glorious promises of, of Ezekiel 33, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, and 39, 29. And this is a really important concept to grasp. Then we come to the New Testament and we read, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. Set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Who would have thought that Ezekiel had so much good news to share? But we must also go where the New Testament goes in terms of Ezekiel 38 and 39 because Gog uh, and Magog make an appearance again in the New Testament in Revelation. 
And so this oracle does point beyond its time to future realities. <coughs> it anticipates the final judgment when, when God reveals his supremacy and sovereignty over all the forces of evil. So who is Gog? The honest answer is that nobody knows. <laughs> but not for lack of trying. The reality is that history has been littered with gogs. <laughs> but if we allow ourselves to be sidetracked into sort of speculation, we're in danger of missing the, missing the point altogether. Right? God is in control. God will win. And God's victory means the ultimate destruction of all those who oppose him. And God's victory means the ultimate security for all those who trust in him. But what Ezekiel 38 also teaches us is that we as God's people should expect opposition. But not because the world is out of control. But precisely because the world is in God's control. And when God's people cling to him in their darkest hour, when we cling to him in our darkest hour, against all odds, it brings him glory. See, God's glory is the primary goal of human history. Your happiness is not. Your comfort is not. May we cling to him in our darkest hour. Even in the geopolitical instability of our world and our concerns over the Middle East or North Korea or communist China, the nations may conspire, the, the people's plot... The kings of the earth may rise up and the rulers band together against God and his people, but for all their posturing, the plans of God's enemies will come to nothing. Because God's purposes and victory stand secure. And if God can defeat the combined forces of Gog and his allies, how much more can he take care of us? Whatever we may face, in our lifetimes in this world. And because of Jesus, even death itself. I wonder if you've ever heard that verse, be still and know that I am God. Have you heard that? Be still and know that I'm... Uh, I'd be surprised if you hadn't. But the context of that verse is not very well known at all. Actually, it comes from Psalm 46 and it sums up the message of Ezekiel 38 and 39 so well that we will end on this. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he's brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the, the, the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says... Be still and know that I am God. 
I'll be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Friends, the Lord has a plan for his glory and ultimately for our good. So be still and know that Gog is not God. Our God is the one who has conscripted Gog into his service for the sake of his holy name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this vision this evening of your supremacy and your sovereignty. May that give us comfort and confidence as we face this world. Father, I pray that we might love you all the more because of what you've had to say to us this evening. And we might be willing, indeed it might be our joy to live for you, given all that you've done for us. We give you great praise. In Jesus' name, amen.